When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Russia's heaviest day of strikes since the early days of the Ukraine invasion. Is this a sign that Putin is desperate? The lead starts right now. A wave of terror in Ukraine, a series of deadly strikes taking out bridges and targeting infrastructure. Why these sites and why now, seven months into this war? Plus, the Los Angeles Council president resigns from part of her job after a recording leaks of her making racist remarks. What she said about a white colleague's black son and why her partial resignation may not be enough to quiet her critics. Plus, one of the most inconvenient yet important cancer screenings, what a new study says about how well colonoscopies work. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper. Destruction across Ukraine tops our world lead. Russia has bombarded Ukraine with more than 80 missiles in eight regions, that is according to Ukraine. Monday's was the most intense stretch of bombing since the start of Putin's unprovoked invasion. And Russia is clearly targeting civilian infrastructure, walkways, water and power stations, even a playground hit. So far, Ukraine says at least 11 people have died, dozens more injured. Putin says it is revenge for this, a Saturday morning attack on the bridge that connects Russia to Crimea. Ukraine has not officially claimed responsibility yet, but... The explosion was a strategic attack on Russia's supply lines, exposing a critical weakness for Russia, its dependence on rail. And for Putin, it's personal. He made it a point to drive across this bridge when it was opened back in 2018, and the attack came just a day after his 70th birthday. CNN's Frederick Plykin reports from Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, where Ukraine says Putin's goal is to inflict terror on civilians. It was in the middle of Monday morning rush hour that waves of Russian missiles started hitting Ukraine's capital and other cities across the country, sending people scampering for their lives. My hands are trembling as I've just seen how the missile was flying overhead, and I heard that sound. Ukraine says the Russians launched more than 80 missiles and more than 20 attack drones at targets in Ukraine. While the air defenses took many out, they couldn't stop them all. Ukraine's president quick to condemn the attacks. We are dealing with terrorists. They want panic and chaos. Ukrainian cities like Lviv, Kharkiv, Dnipro and multiple others reported power outages after Russia's attacks. The deputy head of Ukraine's presidential administration telling me they are working to get the electricity grid back up and running. Of course, critically for us, it's critical infrastructure, electricity infrastructure. But Russian missiles also struck sites that were anything but critical. 
Several cars were destroyed at this busy intersection outside a museum. Even hours after the initial attacks by the Russian military, there are still air raid sirens going off here in the Ukrainian capital. And you can see right here, this is just one impact site of where one of those Russian missiles hit. It ripped a hole into the tarmac of the road here, and five people were killed in this place alone. The attacks come just days after a major Russian logistics route, the Crimean Bridge, was heavily damaged by an explosion. Moscow blames Ukraine for the blast, though Kiev has not taken responsibility for the attack. The Russian army showed video of ships launching missiles toward Ukraine, and Russian President Vladimir Putin acknowledged he's taking revenge. A massive strike was carried out with high-precision, long-range weapons of air, sea and land-based systems on energy, military and communications facilities of Ukraine. But this clearly was not a command facility. In central Kiev, a playground took a direct hit, leaving a giant crater. The capital's mayor, former heavyweight boxing champ Vitaly Klitschko, vowing to stand strong. So your message to Putin? We never come back to Russian Empire. We see our future, part of European democratic family. So, John, you hear there's some pretty strong words coming from Kiev's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. And I spoke to several other top-level Ukrainian officials today, and what I got from them was also a sense of defiance. In fact, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, just a couple of minutes ago, he went to that site where we were also, that had been hit by a Russian rocket. He said the Ukrainians are already working to bring services back up. He also said that he believes that the Russians are doing attacks like the ones today because they're losing on the battlefield. And he said the only answer that Ukraine could give was to make things even more difficult for the Russians on the battlefield, John. <laughs> A playground hit. Frederick Plaikin in Kiev. Fred, as always, thank you so much for your reporting. Now, here in the United States, President Biden says the U.S. will stand with Ukraine, quote, for as long as it takes. CNN's Oren Lieberman and Phil Mattingly join us. Now, I want to start with Phil at the White House. Phil, we're just learning that the president spoke with Vladimir Zelensky. What happened during that conversation? John, that's right. The president has made clear, as you noted, that the U.S. support will continue as long as it takes. The Western coalition will continue that support as long as it takes, reiterating that in a one-on-one -on -one phone call with President Zelensky early this afternoon. Just the latest in a series of Western leaders that spoke with the Ukrainian president. Now, in President Biden's statement, or the readout from the White House about that phone call, they made clear the president expressed his condemnation. But there's also a really critical element here, especially in the lead-up to what is expected to be a G seven leader video conference call tomorrow where President Zelensky is expected to speech speak the White House saying President Biden pledged to continue providing Ukraine with the support needed to defend itself, including advanced air systems. Why that matters, obviously, you could look at the screen and uh, the images that were shown in Fred's piece just a short while ago, but also President Zelensky in a tweet talking about his phone call with President uh, Biden made clear air defense is the number one priority, according to President Zelensky, in the continued defense cooperation between the U.S. and its allies and Ukraine. Ukraine. That will be a central issue of discussion tomorrow and one I know U.S. officials have been weighing uh, and walking through over the course of the last several months, John. Uh, Phil, thank you very much. Stand by. Oren, what about that? What about these weapon systems? Because we know there have been intense ongoing discussions in the National Security Council about what kind of weapons should be included in the next security package. What's the Pentagon say about this? And these are conversations that happen constantly between the U.S. officials and Ukrainian officials. We expect another weapons package this week, and that's because there's a Ukraine contact group meeting in Brussels 
That's where uh, more than 50 different countries come together, figure out what weapons Ukraine has and who has them and how best to get them to Ukraine. Around these, the U.S. has, over the course of the past several months, announced a package in addition to other packages announced pretty much every week or every other week at this point. Up until now, over the course of the past few weeks, the question has been, is the U.S. willing to send ATACMs long-range precision munitions, or is the conversation shifting? And the answer has generally been, it is not at that point yet, considered too much of an escalation risk. As we've seen in the course of the past 24 hours here, the priority has shifted from long-range precision munitions to air defense systems. Those, to some extent, have already been sent. NASAM's an advanced air defense system. One is already in, if I'm not mistaken, from Norway. Two more are expected from the U.S. in the next couple months. Now, are they getting them in faster, or are there more of these air defense systems going in? That's what we'll find out this week. All right, watching it very closely, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon, Phil Mattingly at the White House. Thank you both very much. I want to bring in Beth Sander, the former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, and retired General Philip Breedlove, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. And General, I do want to start with you. The battlefield developments. Ukraine's foreign minister says the strikes show that Putin is, quote, desperate. Do you see it like that? Well, it's very clear that he feels like he has to answer. The, the strike on the Kerch Bridge was... Uh, an important one because that is a key throughway for resupply to Crimea. And Mr. Putin can't afford to go ahead, have it go down. There was a significant amount of military equipment and forces trying to protect that bridge. And they've installed uh, devices to detect explosives and still someone got through. And so that's a blow mm. to Mr. Putin. And I believe he felt like he had to lash out. So Ukraine says, General, that Russia used some 80 missiles and drones today. How long could Russia keep up this pace if it wanted to? Well, what we've seen in the recent past is Russia has really gone low on its supplies of precise long-range strike. Uh, Mr. Putin said that he shot very precise weapons uh, today, and actually they're not. What we see is they're repurposing a lot of surface-to-air missiles from the S-300 system and using them as surface-to-surface missiles because they're running out of the, of the good precision weapons. And so I believe what we'll find out is a lot of these strikes, because they were not precise, as you showed in the beginning of your broadcast here, were uh, of these variants that are not very good at precise strike on the battlefield. Beth, Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president and now deputy head of Russia's Security Council, says Moscow should aim for a, quote, complete dismantling of the political regime of Ukraine. How much of a threat do you think that is to Zelensky and how careful does he now need to be? He has to be very careful because um, one of the only tools left for Putin in terms of striking at the government is either these indiscriminate strikes or some kind of covert assassination attempt. And, um, you know, so we've heard that there have been assassination attempts in the past. Um, but, you know, without decapitating the Ukrainian regime, nothing really is going to happen. And, you know, Putin is under a lot of domestic pressure right now. It's one of the reasons why he responded with this massive attack is because people have been saying the war hasn't been going well. And so he has to he has to establish his authority and, and show a response. Beth, almost as soon as this attack started from Russia on Ukraine, these dozens and dozens of missiles 
Ukraine started reaching out again to the West, to Europe, to the United States, saying, hey, this is why we need more, better air defense systems. Are Ukraine's allies pulling their weight? Yes and no. I mean, it's interesting how some of the smaller allies, uh, particularly ones closer to the front, are putting in, you know, per capita as much as we are close to that. Um, And it's some of the bigger allies that aren't standing up. And, you know, here I'm going to look... uh, squarely in the face of of our good friends, and I mean that, in Germany and France, because they need to do more. Um, Germany promised four air defense systems in June. Not one has shown up. And if they don't want more refugees coming from Ukraine, which I believe is part of Putin's gambit here in creating this terrorist to try to force another wave of refugees, potentially, um, you know, it's in their interest to do all they can to shore up Ukraine. So, General Breedlove, it really does seem as if something sort of snapped over the last few days with Vladimir Putin and what he's trying to do. And the Belarusian president, Alexander Lushenko, announced that he is now going to deploy a new joint regional group of troops with Russia, allow Russian troops in, perhaps. Now, Russia's downplaying this announcement, at least publicly, saying they don't need help from Belarus. But what do you make of this all of a sudden newfound cooperation? Well, I think it's interesting that Russia is downplaying it. I truly believe Russia is behind it. Russia wants uh, Ukraine to feel pressure again in the north because, as was mentioned just now by Beth, they are uh, having a lot of successes in the east against Russian forces. And Russia needs to find relief from this advancing Ukraine army. And part of that would be to worry Ukraine that once again there is an attack front in the north that would threaten Kiev. Now whether this plays out to be real or not uh, is in is in great question. Lukashenko has played a wise game so far of not becoming involved. <coughs> Beth, do you think there will be a military impact or what will the military <coughs> impact be for Ukraine in the wake of this Russian bombardment? Well, I don't really think any. Um, When you're hitting civilian infrastructure, there's not much of a military implication. So, you know, um, they're going to press on. And the real question is just how severely hit are the Russian supply lines because Russia is going to pedal to the metal. And as Phil said, you know, there is this issue of the northern front. But honestly, my personal opinion is that Belarus, the Belarusian president, Lukashenko, cannot put any troops in Ukraine without facing a mutiny inside his country. So, you know, I think the Ukrainians understand they have to protect a little bit, but they're going to just keep pressing south and east. All right. Best Senator General Philip Breedlove, thank you both so much for being with us. Here we do have an important programming note just in Jake Tapper. You guys know him. He will have an exclusive interview with President Biden. That is tomorrow night at nine o'clock Eastern right here on CNN. And next, 29 days before the midterm elections, and we are seeing a full-on embrace of former President Donald Trump by some Republican candidates. Smart move or huge risk? And how former President Barack Obama is planning to make the best use of his star power this election cycle. Plus, a key resignation in Uvalde, Texas, months after the massacre and community outrage. In our politics lead, new details about current and former members of the Trump team participating in state and federal investigations. 
want to bring in CNN's Sarah Murray and Sarah Cassidy Hutchinson, who testified before the January 6th committee, now cooperating with the Atlanta area investigation. What's going on there? That's right. Obviously, she offered bombshell testimony for that uh, January 6th committee hearing. She's now cooperating with prosecutors in Georgia who are investigating Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Of course, we don't know exactly what information she's providing them, but, you know, she worked very closely with Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff. He was very involved in efforts to potentially contest the election in Georgia. And prosecutors are still working on getting his testimony before the grand jury. So she could be the kind of person who's helping to fill in some gaps there, John. And Sarah, you're also learning about one of Trump's attorneys talking now to him, federal investigators. That's right. My colleague Caitlin Collins is reporting that Christina Bob, who's a member of Trump's legal team, remember, she signed that letter uh, saying that all of the documents marked classified had been returned from Mar-a-Lago. We now know that was not the case. You know, she said in that letter that there had been a diligent search. She spoke to federal investigators in recent days. So I think that gives you an indication, of course, that investigators are, are concerned about the validity of that letter. Our understanding is she is still working with Trump's legal team, but she's not heavily involved at this point in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, John. All right, Sarah Murray, thank you. Great to see you any time of day. There is new evidence today debunking Donald Trump's claim that boxes containing classified material at his Mar-a-Lago estate were sent there by government officials. The General Services Administration released hundreds of pages of emails and documents showing the agency wasn't responsible for packing boxes that were sent to Florida and eventually recovered some of them. It seems by the FBI during the August search, which the former president has repeatedly attacked as he hits the campaign trail for MAGA candidates across the country. CNN's Kyung La looks at why Republican candidates in the Western U.S. are especially receptive to stumping with Trump. To anyone who thought embracing Donald Trump might be a political risk in a swing state. I want to show you what it looks like when I step away from President Trump. Carrie Lake, Republican nominee for governor in Arizona, leans into Trumpism in a state where roughly one third of registered voters are independents. Lake, along with Republican U.S. Senate nominee Blake Masters, is part of an entire slate of Republicans backed by and championing Trump in the West. In Nevada, Republican nominee for governor Joe Lombardo. Round of applause for President Trump. And Senate Republican nominee, Adam Laxalt. Do we miss the Trump economy right now? But playing to the Republican base means standing with a former president who continues to lie about the 2020 election. And our country is being destroyed. And praising those who attended the rally in Washington on January 6th, shortly before the riot at the U.S. Capitol. They were there largely to protest a corrupt and rigged and stolen election. Trump energizes the base, but in both Nevada and Arizona, he risks alienating some independents, but not all. I feel like he's doing the right thing by coming back to these these battlegrounds. Joey Valdez is one of them. Do you think he's gonna speak to the independents who are undecided? I think he will, I think he will. We're out here struggling to make ends meet, Buying gas, buying groceries. Can I see us to do six? Yes. Nevada Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the incumbent. When we stand together, we can get it done and make it happen. Si se puede. Si se puede. Leans on her own strategy to keep Nevada blue. Energize her base. Hundreds of union workers going door to door to persuade Democrats to turn out. 
polling shows she's in a tight race with Laxalt. This is a microcosm of the rest of the country. If you can win here, you can win across the rest of the country. But you can't take it for granted. And you can't just show up at the last minute. At stake, control of the Senate. Trump lost both Arizona and Nevada in 2020 by narrow margins. Democrats are banking on another MAGA loss in 2022. It's striking to me that there are candidates who think having the former president campaign for them, given all the issues and challenges he faces, is the right way to persuade Americans that they've got the vision for the future. We do have one immediate indicator of the Trump effect. Senator Cortez Masto's campaign tells CNN that the campaign has raised more than $1 million after Trump's Saturday rally. Saturday and Sunday, says the campaign, were the two best online fundraising uh, days of this cycle. John? So the appearance is cut both ways. Kyung Law in Tempe, Arizona. Kyung, great to see you. Thank you. Next, racist remarks behind closed doors. Hear the audio now public that has a Los Angeles City Council president stepping down from part of her job. All right, back now on the politics lead. The president of the Los Angeles City Council has resigned that position, the presidency, following the release of a secretly recorded conversation during which she used a vile racist slur to refer to the child of a fellow council member. This happened in a conversation about redistricting and the possible impact on communities of color. CNN's Nick Watt reports on the growing fallout from these remarks as calls intensify for her to step down from the council altogether. Mike Bonin is an L.A. City council member and father to a young black son. Last year, they went to an MLK Day parade. City council president Nuri Martinez had some issues. It's like black and brown on this float. And then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. The kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the float, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. Translation, little monkey. They're raising him like a little white kid, which I was like, this kid is a beat down. Like, let me, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Bonin tweeted that Martinez attacked our son with horrific racist slurs and talked about her desire to physically harm him. It's vile, abhorrent, and utterly disgraceful. There were protests at her house. Today, she resigned as council president. She issued this apology. In a moment of intense frustration and anger, I let the situation get the best of me, and I hold myself accountable for these comments. For that, I am sorry. Recorded nearly a year ago, the audio was posted anonymously on Reddit, first reported by the Los Angeles Times. Those present were, reports the paper, all Democrats, all Hispanic. Among them, Labour leader Ron Herrera. He's tweeted, there is no justification and no excuse for the vile remarks made in that room, period. And I didn't step up to stop them. He did not. And when Martinez described Bonin's son as an accessory, according to the paper... He joined in. It's an accessory. When we do the MLK parade. Just like, just like when, when. They used to have those statues when, in, when, in, in uh, the plantations. Yeah, and then when Nuri the brings the, her little yard bag or the, the, the Louis Vuitton bag. <laughs> that last voice, council member Kevin DeLeon. He's got big ambitions. Ran for mayor this year and the U.S. Senate seat in 18. I regret appearing to condone and even contribute to certain insensitive comments, he wrote. I fell short of the expectations we set 
for our leaders. Now, this audio tells us a couple of things. The first is the kind of language that some politicians are happy to use when they think nobody is listening. And also, it tells us about the deep divisions amongst the left of center leaders here in Los Angeles. Now, Nuri Martinez is the child of Mexican immigrants, but she says this about immigrants from the Mexican state of Oaxaca. She calls them short little dark people. And she says of the Cuban-American district attorney here in L.A., she says... F that guy. He's with the blacks. John. All right. Nick Watt in Los Angeles. Nick, thank you so much for that. Want to discuss now John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst. Racist enough to resign the presidency, but not racist enough to give up your whole council seat? Explain to me how tenable that is. (laughs) She's trying to walk the line. She's trying to say, look, I'm going to acknowledge it was wrong which is more than some politicians do, take herself out of leadership, but try to hold on to this seat and hope that she can live another political day. I think that the problem is, is as Nick alluded, look, character is what you do when people aren't watching. Exactly. And, 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 and these folks were caught on tape being racist and loathsome and cruel about the child of one of their colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just unacceptable. I heard you during the whole piece, Daniel Belton, Huffington Post. We were watching Nick's piece there in the wrap-up, and I could just hear you sighing again and again and again. Well, and because it's just so familiar. I mean, the, the, the reality is there is a lot of anti-black racism that exists across all aspects of our society, including on the left, including within the Hispanic community. And so I wasn't surprised, but I was heavily disappointed and horrified by this behavior. But often what goes around in the dark will eventually come to light. And that's what's happened in this situation. This is, I mean, this is the part that the, the, just, the, the sort of comeuppance, the karma of technology in our politics, right? So much has been brought to light, has been brought to all for all of us to see um, from, you know, horrific murders to horrific language behind closed doors. And to the point about character is what counts when you're behind closed doors. These, this technology has become the ultimate accountability. We would never know that she had said that had somebody not recorded it and put it out to the world. So there's possible now. there's racism behind closed doors. Then there's racism at a podium. Yes. Right. In front of thousands of people. And that's what we call this the racism roundup today. And I, you know, I make a joke, but it's sad. It's sad. You know, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville at a Trump event was giving this speech where he just equated black people with criminals. Listen. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. They are not owed that. So, again, this he thought this statement helped him politically. He walked up on this stage, presumably, with the goal of saying that out loud in front of all these people. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that we've gone beyond dog whistles at this point. Like, we're actually calling the dog by its name. We're shouting it out very excitedly and vociferously with no shame whatsoever. And that's a huge problem right now going on within the Republican Party, especially those who have decided to hew so closely to Trump and to basically follow him completely off the edge of this cliff here when it comes to talking about race and gender and ethnicity in this country. I mean, surely there'll be an outcry. Surely there'll be an outcry across the political spectrum, even among Republicans about this. Yes? Deafening in the last 24 hours. No. Uh, There has been an absence of an outcry. Don Bacon on Meet the Press went the furthest to us saying, well, you know, I would have been trying to be more polite. This is the kind of crap that would make Lee Atwater blush. Yeah. All right. I mean, this is this is screaming 
a conflation of reparations, crime and racism. And the crowd cheered and his Republican Senate colleagues have not condemned. With a, and that's the problem. With a little bit of like, you know, the really racist, you know, communism weaved in that you mm-hmm. get in the South as well. Like yeah. they're trying to take everything you have and redistribute it for themselves. I mean, yeah. it's like Unified kind of the trifecta yeah. of, of racism here. I, I don't mean to be cynical, but can you sit here and tell me you don't think it will help or you think it will hurt? Uh, in that crowd for the base of the Republican Party, which is, to your point, melded with Trump and is just, you know, saying it out loud. No, that rallies them up. That's fine. But where where is the Lisa Murkowski? Where are the Republic? Where is Mitt Romney? Where are those who who differentiate themselves and distinguish from that? Because I know they don't condone that, but they need to say it. They need to say it and stand up and, and say it, no matter even if you're a month out from the election. But we are in a general election now. This isn't just about playing to the base. They need to win moderates and independents and swing voters. And that kind of crap's not going to help. Uh, let me just, while we're on this subject, before we move on to something uplifting, um, <laughs> Kanye West on his Twitter account said something, again, that's just anti-Semitic. Yeah. It, there's no other interpretation other than it's anti-Semitic. He says, going death con three on Jewish people, you guys, Jews, have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone who opposes your agenda. Now, there's some debate out there about whether or not he should be banned from Twitter. What I don't understand is why the discussion isn't about Gosh, how awful is it that Kanye West is just saying anti-Semitic things out loud? I think there's this tendency that when it's Kanye, people just, just kind of go like, well, he's trolling. It doesn't matter if the trolling is hateful, damageful, ruins lives. It's like he's going to say it because he likes the attention. It's provocative to him. He feels like he's being this free thinker and this like giving this alternative mm-hmm. viewpoint that is just strictly just completely garbage. It's Jew hating one on one. I like to say that. You know, anti-Semitism is just a kind word for Jew hating. This is yes. just yes. yeah, purely yes. purely. That, that, that's all it is. All right. Let's talk electoral politics apart from this for a second, if we will. CNN, Isaac, uh, Edward Isaac Dover has got some really interesting reporting, yep. which is that former President Barack Obama wants to go out in the campaign trail and campaign. But it may not be as much as some Democrats want, because Obama says it may hurt. I, my presence might hurt as much as it helps. It might rile up Republicans as much as it energizes Democrats. Look, I think it depends. Everything depends on what specific race you're talking about, where you're going. Are you going to try to rally out voters in Philadelphia and, and, you know, urban areas where you really need a really strong base of Democratic support to come out and President Obama will help? Then go. But if we're talking, you know, I don't know, you know, other places that aren't that hot, you know, yeah, like I, I just there are there's a difference. I think Obama's correct. He's astute politically. Uh, that, that not everywhere loves him. Well, sure, not everybody loves him, but, but you know, he is a rock star within the Democratic Party, and he's not kryptonite to independents and moderates in the same way that Donald Trump is. So I, I think, you know, you, he does have a charisma factor that outweighs anybody else in the stage. He's a decade younger than most of the, uh, two decades younger than most of the other leading Democrats, and I think he's probably selling himself short right here. I think he's grappling with the reality that no matter what he does, there's going to be some commentary because there's so many on the right that will literally just make up a controversy whether there's one that actually exists or not. The fact that we just before we were talking about reprobations or the fact that they'll bring up CRT, things that aren't actually even taught in school. Mm-hmm. So there's a willingness to conflate and confuse and just throw these smoke bombs of things that just don't really exist into this argument with Obama that aren't even attached to him that he could be a lightning rod for. So I think it's great for him to definitely come out in districts where there's a high um, African-American population where you need that turnout to come out and vote. But I can totally understand why he might be a liability in some of these more tighter, contentious races. Can you think of of a swing state where he wouldn't go offhand, where he wouldn't be helpful? 
It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I mean, he could find a place to go in Pennsylvania. I, he could find a place to go. Oh, in Ohio. I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. And, and, and that's why, I mean, I think, look, this is, this is you know, every, the cliche is every election is the most important of our lifetime. But this is an unusually impactful midterm election. And, and, and I, I think, you know, you don't want to hide, hide your life behind a bushel if you're a Democrat right now. You want, you want to make sure you're, you're going with all you got. Thank you all so much. Great it was very nice you. to see you all in this unusual seat for me. I appreciate it. Next, a teen shot outside a McDonald's, and it's a police officer fired for pulling the trigger, how this apparently happened, and what we just learned about the teen's condition. New today in our national lead, the Uvalde, Texas school superintendent, Hal Harrell, announced he will retire. The move comes just hours before the school board was due to discuss Harold's future. He says he will remain on the job until a new superintendent is named. The announcement also comes less than a week after CNN reported the Uvalde school district hired a police officer knowing she was under investigation for her response to the deadly massacre at Robb Elementary School back in May. That officer has since been fired. In San Antonio, a policeman has been fired over a shooting that left a teenager hospitalized in critical condition. The 17-year-old was eating in his car outside of McDonald's when the officer confronted him. CNN's Ed Lavendera is following this story. And Ed, there is body cam video of this incident. Yeah, we should warn everyone, what you're about to see is disturbing and hard to watch. It is a scene that unfolded on Sunday night, October 2nd, so about eight days ago. It was 1045 at night uh, when Officer James Brennan approached a 17-year-old sitting in his car. Get out of the car. Shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. So you can hear there uh, how quickly all of this unfolded in just a matter of seconds. And all we can hear about 10 gunshots on the body camera footage. The whole footage lasts just over a minute. Um, Officers say that Officer Brennan was at the scene on an unrelated call when he noticed a car that he believed uh, had evaded him in the days before this altercation. And that's Uh, according to a police report, is why the officer approached that vehicle. Initially, the 17-year-old inside the car was charged with evading uh, uh, officers and assaulting an officer as well. But those charges have now since been dropped. And the DA in San Antonio says they are gathering evidence and will present a uh, a evidence to a grand jury as to whether or not the officer uh, should be uh, charged as well. But the, uh, the police officers you mentioned, John, has been fired. Uh, the uh, police chief there in San, Antonio, in, San, in San Antonio describes the officer's actions as indefensible. Ned, how's the teenager doing? He's still in the hospital? He is still in the hospital. We got an update just a short while ago that said uh, that the 17-year-old is in critical condition. He is on life support um, as several uh, major organs were hit by bullets uh, when he was shot there uh, in in the car. His car drove away about a block or so before it came to a stop. But uh, we are told that he is in critical condition on life support and sedated while the doctors are working to save his life. All right, Ed, keep us posted. Ed Lavendera, thank you very much. Next, the intriguing new study out today on colonoscopies. Everyone my age is paying attention to this. Why the fine print is key here. Going beyond the headlines in today's health lead and a new study on the effects of colonoscopies for cancer screening. But how much should you read into the results? CNN's Elizabeth Cohen is here to explain. Elizabeth, first, 
Tell us about this study, which did take place in Europe, where colonoscopies aren't done quite the same way as in the United States. They aren't, John. This was very interesting. This looked at people getting colonoscopies in Poland, Norway, and Sweden. And I didn't know this. This was surprising. In this study, this is thousands and thousands of people. Only 23% of them were sedated for the procedure. So, John, I don't know if you've ever had a colonoscopy, but I have. I can't even imagine that. That would be an interesting experience to have a colonoscopy and not be sedated. But there are some concerns that when the patients aren't sedated, the doctors might not be quite as thorough because the patients are uncomfortable and maybe in pain and the doctors might not sort of be looking in every crevice and every turn because they can sense that their patients really want to get this over with. So anyhow, let's take a look at what this study found in terms of effectiveness of colonoscopies. So they looked at about 12,000 people who got colonoscopies. These were people in their late 50s and early 60s. It, the, getting that one colonoscopy reduced their colon cancer risk by 30%, and it reduced the risk of them dying from colon cancer by 50%. So that's pretty good. Those numbers are pretty good. But in the U.S., probably for many reasons, one of the ones I just explained, the results are even better. When they look at other studies, results in the U.S. are even better. So the bottom line is, get your colonoscopy. Look, I got mine this year, and yes, I was way sedated, the best sleep I've had in a long time. But Elizabeth, what, what does it mean yes. for people who are watching? What does it mean that, that, that people should do? You know, this gives us even more reason to get a colonoscopy. So let's take a look at what those guidelines are in the United States. The American Cancer Society and others say start getting regular screening at 45. But, and this is a big but, if you have a family history of colon cancer, if you have certain kinds of uh, genetic uh, diseases in your in your family background, you should talk to your doctor about maybe starting even earlier. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you for clarifying all this. Appreciate your reporting. Thanks. So this next one, this is a big story. The rigged election you can't bear to miss. All right, drivers probably not going to like today's money lead. The national average for gas is up 12 cents a gallon in just one week and 20 cents in the last month. AAA says the average is currently at $3.92. That is creeping back toward the $4 mark, and it seems almost certain to hit it. Oil prices hit a five-week high uh, after that move last week by OPEC Plus to cut global oil production. Want to note here, gas prices hit a record at $5.02 back in mid-June. All right, pay attention to this one. Alaska's Fat Bear Week is apparently marred in scandal, voter fraud to be exact. Katmai National Park lets people vote online uh, for their favorite fat bear in this bracket-style challenge. This is supposed to be educational in the run-up to hibernation. It's supposed to be fun, right? But last night, the park tweeted that someone digitally stuffed the ballots and fake votes had to be thrown out. They're cheating in Fat Bear Week. So going into the semifinal round, apparently Bear 747, which is named after a jumbo jet, has 37,000 votes, not 73,000. And Mama Bear, 435 Holly, that's the name, has 30,000 votes, not 80,000. Uh, the final round is tomorrow. Feel free to cast your vote at fatbearweek.org. But don't cheat, because I'll come after you. All right, 
A big interview is on deck tomorrow. Jake Tapper will speak exclusively with President Biden. That's in his new time slot leading up to the midterm elections, 9 o'clock Eastern on CNN. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 